Well, friends, it's great to see you all, great to worship with you this morning. We have the joy of getting to gather together and to sit under God's word, and so we want to do that now. Let me just lead us briefly in prayer before we go to God's word. Lord, we do give you praise. You have called us out of darkness and into the domain of your marvelous light. We have a wonderful and beautiful Savior, and in him we get to rejoice this morning, you who have made those who were dead alive, and we pray that by your word, you would encourage and convict us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know, this past Tuesday, we had off-year elections. And by all accounts, it was a romp. Democrats scored huge wins in Kentucky, in Ohio, in Virginia, in Pennsylvania. And what issue led the charge? Reproductive rights. Or as some refer to it, reproductive justice which I would suggest to you are just Orwellian terms to describe abortion. And it's clear that this abortion issue post-Roe reversal is energizing voters in this current season, such that every pro-life measure that's been on a ballot has failed since the reversal of Roe, and every pro-life measure on ballots across the country has succeeded. And so perhaps it's not surprising to see Republican presidential candidates distancing themselves from the pro-life cause. So former President Trump referred to abortion as, quote, a losing issue. He dodges questions whenever he's asked. Nikki Haley, during the Republican debates just this past Wednesday, she said she doesn't judge anybody for being pro-choice. She said, let's find consensus, right? She pleaded, we don't need to divide America over this any longer. And friends, more Republicans are taking notice. If they're not abandoning their pro-life stance, they're, they're hiding it, or maybe they're equivocating. Because nobody likes to be on the losing side. Nobody likes to be on the losing side. Nobody wants to be thought of as a loser. Nobody wants to associate with losers. We want to be winners, right? We want to associate with winners. And that's not just in politics, Right? We learn that early in life. We learn that on the playground as teams are being chosen. And we want to be what? We want to be chosen on the winning team. Or it's in high school and it's the boy who abandons his old kind of nerdy friends because he's been welcomed into the cool group. Or it's the Arkansas football fan that suddenly has become a fanatic basketball fan, right? Because there's maybe a bit more to cheer about. Employees jumping ship in order to join that high-flying startup. Because the threat of being on the losing side is often enough to make us change sides. Friends, that's true in life. That's sadly true in love. What about religion? What about with God? When God's no longer popular, will we abandon our old loyalties and form new ones? When God himself looks to be on the losing side, will we abandon him in order to fit in or maybe in order to get ahead? Well, friends, it's questions like this that bring us back this morning to our study in 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapters 15 through 18 this morning, which if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, we have those red pew Bibles and the seatbacks before you. You can find our passage on page 266, page 266. And yes, I know Four chapters is a lot of text, which is one of the reasons why we distribute these sermon cards, right, so that you can be reading in advance 
Uh, that'll help you hear and help you, I think, enjoy the sermon even more. But if not, or if you're just maybe joining us as a visitor this morning, 2 Samuel is all about the rise, just the meteoric rise, and then the colossal fall, and then the return of Israel's greatest king, King David. And this morning, we're going to find David in his deepest trough, David at the lowest point in his own life, because his son Absalom initiates a coup, and he forces David to to flee, and David loses his throne, he loses his palace, he loses his city, he loses many of his own friends, he loses many of his wives, he's even forced into exile outside the promised land. David, in these chapters, certainly looks like a loser. And so it's not surprising in these chapters we find people, what, they're switching sides. They're abandoning old allegiances and they're forming new ones. And yet, in all this, we are beginning to see something of how God works in the world. How he works through weakness. How he works through humiliation, the humiliation of his own anointed king in order to accomplish his good purposes. And how we respond to this king in his weakness and in his humiliation will have everything to do with how one day God will respond to us. So I think if we're to summarize these four chapters, we might do it like this. Through rejection and humiliation, God's anointed experiences vindication. Through his rejection and humiliation, God's anointed experiences vindication. And so we'll use that just to break down the text. So first thing we'll see, God's anointed will experience rejection. That's chapter 15. God's anointed will experience rejection, chapter 15. And then second, God's anointed will experience humiliation. That's chapter 16. To that's chapter And then third, God's anointed will experience vindication. That's chapter 18, and we're actually going to push it all the way through 19, verse 8. So if you miss that, that's okay. I'll repeat it as we go through. First, though, God's anointed will experience rejection. God's anointed will experience rejection. So look down with me to chapter 1. Sorry, chapter 15, verse 1. We're not, we're not going all the way back to chapter 1. Chapter 15, verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. 
For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer up worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. And so he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. All right, so the passage opens, notice, with an empty city gate. And remember that fact, because we're going to circle back to it toward the end, this empty city gate. And the city gate is significant because that's where justice was rendered. That's where significant transactions would take place. Only David isn't there at the city gate. And in his place is his son Absalom, and, and he's playing the role of king, right? He's got his whole entourage, all his bodyguards. He's got his tricked-out SUVs leading the way. And Absalom is the consummate politician. Notice he grabs the people right at the city gate. He asks them where they're from. He engages in a bit of small talk. He shakes a lot of hands along the way, right? He's, he's taken off the jacket. He's unbuttoned the top button, maybe even lost the tie, he's rolled up his sleeves, right? He's with the people. He's not down at Bordino's, he's down at the rolling pin. He's candidating for office. And notice he's taking pot shots at the incumbent. And that happens for four years, right out in plain sight. David must have known. But as we saw last week with Amnon, parents don't tend to gravitate toward the unthinkable with their own children and yet during that time we read verse 6 that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel now when we hear that word heart we think sort of the heart is the seat of affections but in Hebrew the heart was often actually the seat of one's will one's reason it's what we might refer to as as the mind and in Genesis 31 20 the same expression is used of Jacob who quote stole Laban's heart, as in Jacob deceived Laban. In other words, the writer's helping us see that Absalom had deceived their minds. He tricked them into thinking that he would be a better king than his father David. After all, he did have the striking features that we saw last week. This is the guy, right, with no blemishes. He's got the boyish charm, and don't forget that hair. Right, That flowing hair the guy has. He is made for the screen. He looked the part and we see he's playing the part. And so some chose sides willingly. Like David's counselor, Hithophel. He was, after all, the grandfather of Bathsheba. So perhaps this defection was as much personal as it was political. But others are unwilling co-conspirators in all this. So the 200 he brought with them in verse 11, really that's a, that's a fantastic move, a brilliant one. Maybe it was given by the counsel of Ahithophel. Because by taking those 200, what had Absalom done? But he had removed from Jerusalem some of 
David's most significant advisors and valuable administrators such that when they're there with Absalom and he blows the trumpet and he's proclaimed as king, it looks like they're all in it. How are they supposed to go back to David now? Of course, David thinks they're in it. You see, Absalom is willing to use people to satiate his own lust for power. No different than Amnon was willing to use Tamar to satiate his own lust for power. You know, toward the end of verse 5, that, that verb, take hold, it's the same verb used back in chapter 13, 11, when Amnon took hold of Tamar in order to rape her. The king was supposed to be the husband to the nation, but Absalom here we're seeing, he is bent on a kind of national rape. You see, for Absalom, people, again, they're simply tools. They're tools for him to use and then tools to cast aside once he's done with them. I wonder if you ever treat people like that, where people exist simply as tools for your own self-gratification. In maybe the boardroom, at work, do you ever use people in order to get ahead? Maybe in the classroom, do you always look and try to gravitate towards certain people in order to use them to get ahead? What about in the bedroom or in the dorm room? Do you use people for a cheap thrill? You're walking, if so, in the footsteps of Absalom. And as we'll see later, it won't end well for him. But here in chapter 15, now is the numbers for Absalom as they swell there in Hebron. And Hebron is just his own birthplace. News gets to David. And, and look with me to chapter 15, verse 13. We read, and a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all the servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Right? This is a rebellion. This is a nationwide, if you will, rejection of David, not just by David's own son, not just by his trusted counselor, Hithophel, but we're seeing this is a rejection by all the people as well. And notice, David knows who he's dealing with. He knows his son. He knows his son is a murderer. And so in his rejection, David is forced to flee immediately. And he hastily leaves behind 10 of his private consorts there to keep the palace running in his absence. And that's an important piece of information that's going to come back in chapter 17. And where does David flee? Look, chapter 15, verse 30. And David went up the ascent to the Mount of Olives weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Friend, do you see here how David's rejection prefigures the rejection of David's greater son? For on that fateful night, Jesus would also be betrayed by one of his own, just as David here was betrayed by one of his own. 
And on that fateful night, Jesus actually walked the very same road from Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives that David here is walking. God's king, rejected by God's own people. You see, that's always how it's been, sadly, with God's anointed. He has been rejected by the people. And my Christian friend, member of UBC, right? If David experienced great rejection, and if David's greater son, Jesus, experienced great rejection, friends, should we expect to experience anything different? So often in the midst of rejection, what do we assume? We assume, yeah, maybe God's abandoned us. Or maybe we assume that God's not following through for us. Or we think something strange is happening to us. We don't think this is the way it's supposed to be. But this is always the way that it's been. It was on this flight from Jerusalem that David penned, if you know, Psalm 3. He knew many were his foes, and yet in Psalm 3... He could cry out, but you, O Lord, are shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Friend, it's good to ask, how did the Lord sustain David during this horrible time? Well, he did it in part through friendships. Though most rejected him, we are seeing there's a faithful remnant that stayed faithful to him. And so in chapter 15, verse 19, who do we read of? We read of this guy, Ittai, the the Gittite. So Gittite, he's from Gath, and Gath means he's a Philistine. Right, he's a Philistine. And David says to Ittai, chapter 15, verse 19, he says to him, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, referring now to his son Absalom. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. Imagine that he shows up the day before and there's a coup the next day. You came only yesterday and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, Wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. What a beautiful response, isn't it? See how Ittai is this island of fidelity just in this sea of treachery around David. And in language that's really reminiscent of Ruth, if you remember Ruth in chapter 1 with Naomi, Notice the Philistine here is more loyal than all Israel. The Philistine is actually more loyal than David's most loyal son. And he's saying to David, basically, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay, right? Your people are my people. That's the kind of speech he gives. And it's another reminder to us that God's plan has always been about the nations. For the true children of Abraham are not those just by physical birth, but those by spiritual birth. Those who have the faith of Abraham like this Gittite. But it's not just Ittai. It's also Abiathar and Zadok. So look forward with me. Chapter 15, verse 24. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with him. All the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it 
and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. So while Absalom has most of the army, it's clear David, he's got the clergy. Not that that might help him on the battlefield, but it's not insignificant. And at this point, it might have been really tempting for David to take the ark. But friends, David is, he's not dumb. He remembers what happened back in 1 Samuel 4 when Israel disastrously treated the ark. Some lucky rabbit's foot, some lucky charm. And David's not going to repeat that fiasco. He knows Yahweh's furniture, just carrying that about. He knows that doesn't secure Yahweh's own favor. Right? God is not some talisman. He's not going to be mocked and manipulated. And so notice he sends them back to Jerusalem. And he sends them to begin a kind of spy network there in Jerusalem. And then there's Hushai the Archite, the third of David's friends here, verse 32, who just happens to show up in verse 32 right after David prayed that Ahithophel's counsel would be turned into foolishness. Because, friends, there are no coincidences when it comes to a holy God. David says to him, to Hushai the Archite, verse 33, chapter 15, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Now Hushai is likely old, which explains why David says he'll just be a burden, right? Too old to run and to move with the army as they flee. And so he sends him back. He says to Hushai, basically, you can do more for the war effort, not on the front lines, but back there in Jerusalem. But friends, notice something about all these friends, all these men of David. They're all serving their king, but notice they're not all serving their king in the same way, are they? Because, friends, the call of discipleship with Jesus will look different for every one of us. Some of us, like Ittai the Hittite, we're out there on the front lines. We're on the field of, of cross-cultural ministry and missions, and we're trying to proclaim Christ where Christ has not been named, and that's the call some of us will have. But some of us may be more like Abiathar and Zadok called sort of into the church offices and to kind of vocational ministry. Whereas I think most of us will be like Hushai. We're not going to be sent to, to the front lines, but instead we're going to be sent right back into the world. And so what do we do? We work our jobs. We care for our families. We do what normal people do, but we do it for Jesus. We do it not to have a comfortable life. We do it not to have a successful life. But we do it in order to have a purposeful life, given over to him. You know, David asked Hushai to risk his own life for him. And friends, it's no different for any of us as we live in the world. We're called to risk our lives in just the same way. Not exactly in all the particular circumstances, but with the same heart. The question is, are we willing to follow a rejected king? Will we give up everything for one who appears in the world to be losing? Will we, like Moses, bear the reproach of Christ because we know that it's worth more than all the wealth of Egypt? Hebrews 11. Even when we're not on the front lines, we're still called to risk everything for Christ like Hushai. Friends, do we do that? Do we live in this world in that way? 
Well, this leads us to our second point. God's anointed will experience humiliation. Secondly, so yes, he experiences rejection first, but second, God's anointed will experience humiliation. And in the same way, we're introduced to three sets of friends in chapter 15. We're going to be introduced to sort of three sets of enemies in chapter 16. So first, we come across Ziba. And that sounds familiar. It's because we read about this guy back in chapter 9. He was, he was Mephibosheth. Well, he was Saul's servant, and then he became Mephibosheth's servant. And this guy rolls up, and he rolls up in chapter 16, kind of meals on wheels. Right? Michelin style, though. This is fancy. This is nice. Look down at me there, verse 1, chapter 16. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And David, grateful for this, but then he asks Ziba, hey, where's Mephibosheth? And, and Ziba goes on to say, behold, he, referring to Mephibosheth, remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will be given Sorry, the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. And we read that and we think, oh no, right? Our hearts sink. Not Mephibosheth. He hasn't turned too, has he? But you know, in chapter 19, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week, we actually hear a different story from Mephibosheth's mouth. And the closer we look, actually the less clear it is here that Ziba is actually an ally of David. For unlike the other friends back in chapter 15, notice he doesn't really join the war effort. He doesn't enlist for service. And in fact, other than a few donkeys and some food, of which we know it's a massive estate, that didn't cost him much. Like this got warehouses and barns of food. Well, he hasn't really risked anything. Nobody can see back in Jerusalem what he's done. If Absalom wins the throne, there's complete deniability, right? He's just been back on the farm the whole time. But if David wins, well, now he's ingratiated himself to the king. And David, not knowing better and hearing what he hears from Ziba, turns over all the estate that was Mephibosheth's to Ziba. And now that Ziba got what he wanted, right now that he's capitalized on David's crisis, now that he's lined his pockets, what does he do? He goes right back home to enjoy his new wealth and status. Friends, I wonder if you ever treat Jesus like that. Do you ever treat Jesus like Ziba treated David? Do you ever flatter him? Do you ever seek to do a, a few good deeds for him? Try to please him just a bit so that you can get something from him. That's exactly what Ziba's doing. And recognize that's not discipleship when you play both sides Yes, Jesus will have some of my life, right? I want to cover my religious bases, but he's not going to have all of my life. Can't have all of it. I need the rest of my life. And that's since Jesus is just an insurance policy. Jesus is just a means to an end. That is how so many live. But friends, that is not Christianity. Not in the slightest. Remember Psalm 51, 17. Sacrifices and offerings I do not desire, but a broken and contrite heart. You know, David can't see Ziba's heart here, but you know who can? Jesus can. And he would say, I think to Ziba, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. But it's not just Ziba. Then there's Shammai, 
And next, he comes up, the second of David's enemies. And, and this is where David's humiliation, I think, is on greatest display for all to see. Because David and company arrive in, they arrive in Baharim, which is a, a village in and among the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, so it's not surprising that someone from Saul's house comes out at this point, and we read that this man, verse 5, Shimei, he cursed continually, Shimei did, sorry, he cursed continually, and picking up chapter 16, verse 6, and he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right and on his left, and Shimei said as he cursed, get out. Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So right there we've got pretty significant, right, beatdown, verbal beatdown, even physical beatdown. God's true king here is dodging stones directed right at his head while Shammai is out there and he's cursing his mother and proverbially kicking his dog and spitting on him, kicking up dust. Right, he's doing all of it. This guy is a world-class heckler. And he does it in the sight of all of David's men. Right? This is massive public humiliation. Shammai believes David to be a cursed man. And friends, that's how it appears. And Shammai is partly right. This evil is coming from within David's own house. And David is a man of blood in the killing of Uriah. But he's also mostly wrong. David isn't guilty of Saul's blood. You know, appearances can be deceiving. David looked cursed. He looks to have lost everything. David, there's no way they're thinking at this point, David is God's anointed. And you know, friends, the same mistake Shammai makes here is the same mistake many of us make with Jesus. For Jesus certainly looked cursed as his own rejected him, as they mocked him, as they beat on him, as they spit on him, as they abused him. He certainly looked like a cursed man as he hung on that cursed tree. Jesus didn't look the part, right? A suffering savior. No one was guessing that one. That's not the team captain we need. That's what everyone's thinking. This one can't be God's anointed. But it's exactly what they needed. They just couldn't recognize it. David was God's anointed, only they, Shammai here, were too ashamed to follow him. My Christian friend, I wonder if that ever describes you. Do you ever find yourself too embarrassed and too ashamed to follow Jesus? Maybe it's all this talk about being lost sheep, all this talk about being sinners, 
Maybe it's all this talk about heaven and hell and the wrath of God. Maybe it's all this talk about exclusivity, about how he himself is the only way to God. Maybe it's his teaching on absolute sexual holiness and purity. Maybe it's his teaching on marriage as being a covenant between one man and one woman and what he says about divorce. I wonder, does any of that, are you ever embarrassed by that? Are you ever ashamed to align with him? Well, friends, here as a warning, Jesus' words in Mark 8, 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see, God's anointed here as being enrolled in that school of suffering. He's been given sort of upper graduate level classes in humiliation and shame. And everybody around David sees this as weakness, but he understands this is part of God's school to sanctify him. And so what does David do? He submits to the shame and the suffering. He entrusts himself to God. He is preparing us for Jesus, the author of our salvation, who is made perfect And suffering, bringing what? Many sons to glory, Hebrews 2. And then we're introduced again to Hithophel, the third of David's enemies. David's trusted counselor who's now switched sides. So in chapter 16, verse 15, Absalom enters the city. And Hushai is there right away to greet him. And of course, Absalom is going to be naturally suspicious of King David's close friend. But Hushai promises Absalom... Chapter 16, verse 18, he says, For whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And you know what's fascinating? Absalom hears that and he thinks, oh, he's talking about me. Actually, I think he's talking about David. Everything he says is actually about David. Absalom is just too vain to notice it. And no sooner has Absalom entered the city that Ahithophel gives counsel. Look with me, chapter 16, verse 21. His counsel to Absalom is go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. And so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now that's shocking to us. But it's actually brilliant advice. If you want to make undeniably clear your claim to the throne. For in doing this, Absalom has made obvious to all. He's in it to win it. He's saying, I'm going all in. All of my chips, right? I'm rolling the dice on this one right here. And now the people can know Absalom is all in so they can be all in with him. And in that sense, this is really more of a political act than it is a sexual one. And so there, on the palace roof, and don't miss this, where are we right here? Right back on the palace roof where this whole thing got started with David looking out at Bathsheba in chapter 11. And there on the palace roof, he sleeps with David's concubines, his consorts. The humiliation now of David's name 
The shame that has now come to David's own house. It is now before all Israel. There is no hiding it. There is no concealing it. And that was the point. And yet we know even in this humiliation, God's word was coming to pass because what just took place there on the palace roof was exactly what God said would take place. If you remember back in chapter 12, verse 11. So to high schoolers in the room, uh, we were having a conversation this past Wednesday night. Uh, we're having a Q&A there in the youth meeting over in the fellowship hall. And a number of you were asking about the relationship between sort of free will and human agency and God's sovereignty. Well, notice even here, what do we have with human responsibility? Well, we're seeing Ahithophel, and he gives his counsel. And Ahithophel is giving his counsel of his own free will. Nobody's constraining him. Nobody is forcing him. Absalom, he's doing the same. Nobody constraining or forcing him. And yet God, we see, is also entirely sovereign. And he's using this event to bring about his word to David. And friends, so it would be with Jesus. Acts 4, 27 Peter says, for truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, so Jewish and now Roman authorities, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. All of them conspiring on their own accord, right? Human responsibility. And yet, what do we read? They gathered to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, right? God's sovereignty, hand in hand together. And this all sets up chapter 17, which is really asking the question, who will Absalom listen to? He's now got two counselors in his midst, Ahithophel and Hushai. And Ahithophel, there are some tough names in here, Mephibosheth, Ahithophel. Well, he speaks first. Look down, chapter 17, verse 1. Ahithophel says, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him when, while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace." And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Right, his counsel's brilliant. He's again, wise man, at least in the ways of the world. He's saying, strike while the iron is hot, right? David is weary. David is reeling. David has had no time to gather reinforcements. Let this be a calculated strike. Just take out David. Spare the people. They'll come back. They'll serve you. And friends, so was it with Jesus. All the elders, the Jewish leaders, what are they doing? Conspiring together to kill God's anointed, just as they're doing here with David. But Absalom knows with many counselors, plans don't come to ruin. And so he now invites Hushai to speak up. And basically, Hushai says, chapter 17, verse 5 to 14. I'm not going to read it, but he basically says, hey, listen, Absalom, you know your dad. Your dad's a wily man. He's a crafty man. He's not going to be sleeping with his army. He's going to be hiding somewhere. And he's got battle-tested men around him. So instead of a calculated, immediate strike, what does he say? Chapter 17, verse 11. He says, but my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you. From Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude. 
and that you go to battle in person. And so we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and of all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. So notice what Hushai says. He says, hey, hey, Absalom, don't, don't rush this. Don't be careless. Rather, let's gather all Israel, right, from Dan to Beersheba, which means from the deep south all the way up to the north. Gather all the men. Amass a huge army. And notice what he says. A huge army, don't miss it, with you at the head. Notice verse 11. You go to battle in person. right? You're leading the charge of this great army. Hushai there is appealing to what? To his own vanity. He's appealing to his vanity. He's making Absalom, again, the center of everything. And, of course, Absalom takes it because what? That's the philosophy of his own life. He's the center of everything. Hushai says, well, then we'll wipe him out, and that will be maximum glory for you, Absalom. And honestly, it is not the best military advice. You lose the element of surprise. It gives David time to regather his troops. He gets to strengthen his army. He gets to plan how this battle is going to unfold. But shockingly, Absalom buys it. Why does he buy it? Chapter 17, verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And so notice how David's prayer, back in chapter 15, verse 31, that Ahithophel's counsel would be turned into foolishness. Though Absalom is making the decisions We are seeing right here how what the king's heart is but a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, right? He can turn it wherever he wills. Friends, that's how God works. God is determined to frustrate the wisdom of the wise. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? It's through the foolishness of Jesus' own rejection and humiliation on the cross God would choose the foolishness of that means to destroy Satan himself. Right? He's confounding the world's wisdom and he's doing it even right here. My Christian friend, it, again, it begs the question, what, what wisdom has your ear this morning? What wisdom has your ear? Absalom pursued the path of vainglory. And we're about to see how that ends. What about you? Do you listen to the wisdom of this world? Are you swayed by it? Does it tickle your ears? Or do you see the wisdom of weakness and humility set out before you and the gospel of Christ? Do you find your glory in that? Your glory in him and not yourself? Well, at this point, David's spy network now springs into action. And then jumping forward, chapter 17, verse 23, the camera is going to pan back to Hithophel. Look there, 17:23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, he went off home to his own city, he set his house in order, and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. So Ahithophel goes home, he 
walks through the front door, says hi to his family, heads up the stairs. There he puts his office in order, his things in order. He grabs his military dress blues. He stands, he pulls out a revolver, and you know how it goes. Ahithophel knows where this is going. He's not a fool. He can see where it's headed. He knows he's going to die a traitor one way or another. And so just as Judas betrayed God's anointed, and just as Judas hanged himself, so Ahithophel, David's Judas, hangs himself as well. And we're beginning to see right there the end of all those who rebel and reject God's anointed. Which brings us into chapter 18. And thirdly, and briefly, God's anointed will experience vindication. God's anointed will experience vindication. And in chapter 18, we come to the great battle, what's been building, the battle between father and son. So look forward to me, chapter 18, verse 6. So the army, referring to Absalom's, went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated, sorry, the army that's going out was David's. And the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim, and the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And that's really all we're told about the battle itself. Right? There's no glory to be had in civil war. The Bible knows that. And what exactly does it mean that the forest devoured more people than the sword? Right? Is this like Fangorn Forest? If you know Lewis, uh, Tolkien, rather, is like Treebeard? Is he hiding in here somewhere? Is this, again, Revenge of the Ents? I don't know. It's, we're not exactly told what happens. But it is clear that David's choice of this wooded forest, what did that do? It slowed Absalom's army. It forced them to spread out, which gave David the advantage and reduced Absalom's advantage. And that's what happens to Absalom. Rather, it is what happens to him that gets all the attention. So look down, 18 verse 9. 18 verse 9, and Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Not the case. That's what you read in the Bible. It never just happens. God's up to something. He just happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule. So mules were what kings rode. It was a royal mule. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth. While the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai for my sake protect the young man Absalom. So that's what he said back up in verse 5, just heads up. On the other hand, if I, this is the soldier speaking, had dealt treacherously against his life, Absalom's, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand 
and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and they threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap, very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it's called Absalom's monument to this day. Well, friends, this account is filled with tragic irony. The handsome rebel is caught, notice by what? He's caught by his own handsome head. The vanity of his hair that we read about last week as he weighs and measures it, that vanity becomes the cause of his own calamity. The mule which served as his royal mount, that mule dismounted him. And the man who longed to lead a massive army into glory dies alone in ignominy. Notice he's buried where? He's buried outside here the promised land. He's under a pile of stones a pile of stones, which is exactly how traitors like Achan back in Joshua 7 were buried or pagan kings are buried in Joshua 10. Absalom is dying, a cursed man, outside the promised land, family line extinguished. Friends, that is the reward of rebellion against God's anointed. We see it in Absalom. And yet even here we are being prepared for the death of God's true son. For Jesus, like Absalom, would hang upon a tree. And like Absalom, Jesus too would be suspended, as it were, between heaven and earth. And Jesus, like Absalom, would be pierced through, and he too would die. Jesus, like Absalom, would die a man under God's curse. Jesus would die the rebel's only the rebellion and the curse weren't his. When Jesus died the rebel's death, friends, that's, that was my death. That's your death. That is our death. It was not Jesus' death. He did nothing deserving of death. Jesus bore the curse of rebellion against all sins so that we wouldn't have to bear that curse. He died. A sacrificial death in our place so that all those who look to Jesus, all those who trust in him, they can be forgiven and they can be reconciled to God. And how do we know God accepted that sacrifice? Well, it's because he's not, he's not buried under a pile of stones, right? There was a stone and it was rolled away. The tomb is empty. He's not there. That's the monument to Jesus. And he delights to give new life to all who follow him. So if you've come here this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, well, first, congrats for making it this far into the sermon, right? That's, that's a significant accomplishment. But I want you to see in Absalom, I want you to see the end of all those who rebel against God's anointed. It may look like Jesus and all of his humiliation and all of his rejection. It may look like he is on the losing side. It often looks like that in the world. I, I know it. But friends, appearances can be deceiving. 
Don't make the same mistake that Absalom and so many make. It is not too late to change sides. Not too late to claim new allegiances. Turn to God. Bow before his anointed King Jesus. Be accepted by him. He would welcome you with open arms. And so chapter 18 ends with David receiving news of Absalom's death. He collapses, verse 33, shaking, crying out, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son. David knew he deserved a sinner's death. He knew it was in part his sin that hung him on that tree. And so when his army returned, in chapter 19, verse 4, David is still wailing the death of his son. And at the sight of this, Joab is fit to be tied. He takes the gloves off, and he goes right at David. Look, chapter 19, verse 5. Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out, speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And what do we read? Well, like David before Nathan, at that speech, he is struck to the heart. He puts aside fatherly grief. He recognizes the good hand of the Lord in bringing about the vindication of his own anointed even when that vindication comes at the expense of his own son. And so where do we find David? Look, chapter 19, verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. So notice that gate that was empty back at the start. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now that seat is filled by God's true king. David has come to see, friends, what we all must see, that it is through rejection and humiliation that God's anointed experiences vindication. So where does that leave all of us this morning? For as much as Absalom's rebellion may fill us with disgust, recognize, spiritually speaking, we are all Absalom. We are all Absalom, for we have rebelled against God's holy and anointed King Jesus Christ. We have rejected and we have sought to place ourselves on his throne. And in doing so, we have publicly humiliated him upon the rooftop of our own lives. We deserve the shameful fate of Absalom. Yet the beauty of the gospel is that through Christ, God turns enemies into friends. So again, I ask, where does that leave you? For you, if you will not own, if you won't own this king and his rejection and his humiliation, 
recognize this king will not own you at his vindication. Let's pray.